Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikaway, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Saturday, uh, July 2nd, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Uh, later on in our program, we'll be coming up with our regular Pan-African Newswire report, and uh, we'll have dispatches on the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, the delegation which met with the military leaders of Mali to discuss the current regionally imposed sanctions and plans uh, for a democratic transition in that West African state. In the central uh, African nation of Burundi, uh, the country has celebrated its 60th anniversary of national independence. Unrest in eastern Libya has led to a violent attack on the regional parliament. We'll have details on that as well. And South Africa is still plagued with power outages due to the lack of capacity by the state-owned electrical company, ESCOM. In the second hour, we will receive an update uh, from the African Centers uh, for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, They'll be discussing the current status of uh, public health uh, related to COVID-19 and other uh, illnesses on the continent. Finally, we will look at the recent North Atlantic Treaty Organization NATO Summit and its implications uh, for the situation in Eastern Europe, uh, uh, U.S.-Russia relations, and also for the implications of the further militarization and warfare, uh, which we already see taking place in Eastern Europe. Uh, These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude uh, with Les Maisons de Meringue. uh, And, of course, this is the La Société de Ambientures. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
mwana bato Aeba kalalala Samina poko baboyana Mwena nakosuna Ezalite Bate kinga imingi na baninga Nalibongo bamoni yote Ezala kinga zoni Yanga yoma bazo na koleta Nasepela nini inga imwana mama Kisangani mosika baboti yokoko Nasolo langa ina nani mama Nisema kea mbushwairi Nakanisi mingi inga imwana papa Dongo yoso nazali sena dom kafe Nalongo labasusi eko kondi sangai Uko angu alo koreta Nasepela nini inga imwana mama Kisangani mosika baboti yokoko Nasolo langa ina nani mama Nisema kea mbushwairi Nakanisi mingi inga imwana papa
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all the listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition uh, of our program. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Our lead story uh, deals with the current uh, political military situation in the West Africa region. West African leaders uh, will weigh the future of sanctions imposed against three countries where the military, uh, that uh, will be done uh, tomorrow, sparking concern uh, for stability in one of the world's most coup-prone regions, that is, as it has become once again. The economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, has slapped tough sanctions uh, against uh, various countries. Uh, Mali, after a military coup d'etat, there's been less severe uh, penalties on Burkina Faso and Guinea, which, is, which both have also undergone military coups. 
within the last year in a one-day summit in the uh, Ghanaian capital of Accra. Uh, ECOWAS will decide uh, whether these measures should be maintained, strengthened, or lifted. At the core of their talks will be uh, the bloc's demands that the juntas set an early timetable for returning uh, to their barracks. Uh, Mali, a poor, landlocked uh, West African country in the grip of a decade-long jihadist conflict, has been under a trade and financial embargo uh, since uh, earlier this year a move that has badly uh, strained its economy. Uh, Burkina Faso, another Sahel country caught up in the jihadist turmoil, and Guinea have so far only been suspended from the bodies of the 15-nation bloc. The three states uh, underwent uh, four coups over a period of 18 months, uh, two in Mali uh, in August of 2020 and again in May of 2021, one in Guinea in September of 2021, and one in Burkina Faso in January of this year. Alarmed by the risk of contagion, ECOWAS has stepped up top-level meetings and piled pressure on military rulers to accelerate the return to civilian leadership. On June the 4th, the bloc avoided ruling on sanctions instead gave itself another month to negotiate. And you can read this uh, article in its entirety uh, over uh, the Pan-African Newswire in Burundi, uh, the country has celebrated the 60th anniversary of its independence in Bujumbura with a military parade and guests of honor from around the world. The Burundian president, Ibarista Ndaye Shmi, uh, during uh, the ceremony hailed the new Burundi after six years and further advocated for a better tomorrow for the Central African country. After 60 years, Burundi is no longer the same. It is a new Burundi. It is for this reason that we must cherish the chapter that we have started. We must not deviate uh, from the good path that we have taken. Now, that's according to President Everett Ndai Shimi, who is the Burundian president. President Ndai Shimi further reckoned uh, the underdevelopment status of the country linking colonizations as the root of ethical vices like wars. This, according to uh, Everesti and Yishimi uh, has relegated the country to the bottom of the economic ladder. Uh, Burundi is ranked as the poorest country in the world by the World Bank. Uh, this colonization divided us, and this has many consequences. Burundians kill one another. The Burundian authorities did not understand who the Burundian people were and organized the murder themselves, uh, said Ndaiyishimi. Ndaiyishimi further warned individuals who propagate instability against doing so and further warn Western countries against harboring such individuals. People who disturb our country should not be welcomed in these Western countries as long as these people have countries in which they can settle down and live in peace. They will continue to disturb African countries. So if the international community wants peace in Africa, we ask them to not welcome on their soil anyone who disrupts or who disturbs African countries said the Burundian president, Ndaiyi Shimi. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, protesters have stormed Libya's parliament building in the eastern city of Tobruk. Uh, this happened yesterday. They were demonstrating against deteriorating living conditions and political deadlock. That's according to the Libyan media. 
Uh, several television channels said that protesters had managed to penetrate the building and committed acts of vandalism, while media outlets showed images of thick columns of black smoke coming from its perimeter as angry young protesters burned tires. Other media reports said part of the building had been burned. The parliament building was empty as of Friday. Uh, and, of course, uh, Libya's parliament or House of Representatives has been based in Tobruk, hundreds of kilometers east of the capital of Tripoli. Since an east-west schism in 2014 followed the revolt that toppled dictator, uh, the imperialist-designated uh, dictator, but revolutionary Pan-Africanist statesman, Muammar Gaddafi, and, of course, this happened uh, in uh, 2011 during the uh, NATO Pentagon-engineered counter-revolution. A rival body formerly known as the High Council of State is based in Tripoli. Images uh, that were shown uh, through the mass media on Friday uh, had protesters driving a bulldozer. Uh, they had managed to smash through a part of the gate, allowing other demonstrators to enter more easily while cars of officials were set on fire. And if you want to follow the situation in Libya, just log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. Finally, in the Republic of South Africa, South Africans are struggling in the dark to cope with increased power cuts that have hit households and businesses across that country. The rolling power cuts have been experienced for years, but this week the country's state-owned power utility, ESCOM, extended them so that some residents and businesses have gone without power for more than nine hours a day. A strike uh, by ESCOM workers added to the utility woes, including breakdowns of its aging coal-fired power plants, insufficient generation capacity, and corruption. According to experts, the prolonged power cuts are hitting South Africans in the winter months of the Southern Hemisphere when many households rely on electricity for heat, light, and cooking. Small and large businesses have had to close down for prolonged periods and or spend large amounts for diesel fuel to operate generators. The power blackouts are here to stay, say experts, who warn it will take years to substantially increase South Africa's capacity to generate power. South Africa's mine coals and relies uh, heavily on coal-fired plants, which cause noticeable air pollution. The country is looking to increase power production from solar and other renewable sources. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. The agency is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, over 24 years ago. Since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to, of course, uh, read the Pan-African Newswire, first just go to panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com to read the Pan-African Newswire. To log on to the Pan-African Journal, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com 
forward slash Pan-African Journal. And, uh, of course, uh, you can have access to today's program for Saturday, July 2nd, 2022, as well as over 1,100 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Turn the Heat On uh, from uh, Keith Hudson. And you're listening uh, to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Today is Saturday, July 2nd, uh, 2022. And uh, right now we want to move into a briefing from the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, a briefing uh, with the uh, newly appointed acting uh, Status of the COVID-19 pandemic in Africa and other issues. From the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Now, the whole point is uh, to update uh, you as uh, colleague journalists, so that you can also update your audiences on the situation of COVID-19, but also including other pandemics that the country is starting to face. And uh, to take us through that will be the acting director of the Africa CDC, Dr. Ahmed Ogwell. Before we get to that, let me just introduce a few topics that uh, he will be covering. So apart from the actual intervention on the pandemics, he's also going to be updating us on a number of training programs that the African Union through the Africa CDC is offering to member states. So the first one that I will highlight is the training of 20 African Union member states, uh, which is going on in Abuja, Nigeria, on the monkeypox virus diagnostic, and as I currently going on in Abuja, and will conclude today. He will also talk about uh, the training to strengthen the response to the colliding pandemics of COVID-19 and HIV at regional and country levels. In addition, Dr. Ogwell will also talk about the distribution of more than 3,600 test kits to African Union member states to support in the surveillance and detection needs in both endemic and non-endemic countries. So that's quite a full program and lineup for you. When we get to the question and answer section, please send in your questions to this WhatsApp number, plus 251-94-550-2310. Plus 251-94-550-2310. But as usual, you can also come through live and also send in your questions through the question and answer section. My name is Wayne Musabayana. I'm Head of Communication at the African Union Commission, and it will be my pleasure to be with you for the next one hour. For now, though, I hand over to Dr. Ahmed Ogwell. Morning, Ahmed. It's over to you. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, um, um, Wayne. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, colleagues, wherever you're joining uh, from. Um, let me start today's uh, briefing by sharing some numbers uh, for COVID-19. Um, as of yesterday evening, the total number of cases that we have documented on the continent for COVID-19 stands at 11,794,205 cases. This accounts for about 3% of the total cases that we have documented throughout the world. On recoveries, we have documented 11 million 153,000 and 97 cases that have recovered, and this represents 95% of the total cases that we have reported here on the continent of Africa. On deaths, unfortunately, we have lost 254,079 people here on the continent, which gives um, a case fatality rate of 2.2% and accounts for about 4.1% of the deaths due to COVID-19 reported globally. The following five countries are accounting for 61% of all the cases of COVID-19 reported here in Africa. South Africa with 34%, Morocco with 10%, Tunisia with 9%, and Egypt and Libya each with 4%. When we look at the case fatality rates across the continent, 39 countries um, out of the 55 are reporting a case fatality rate that is higher than the global average of 1.2%. Two countries are still reporting a case fatality rate of more than 5%, those two remain Somalia and Sudan. When we look at um, uh, the experience with uh, 37, 53 countries actually on the continent have experienced a sad wave, and there is no change in that number since the last time that we updated you, while 48 countries have experienced a fourth wave, and again, there is no change in the number of countries from the last time that we had this press briefing. Um, but since, since the last wave, one more country, that is Togo, has actually experienced a fourth wave. Let me take that again. 48 countries have so far experienced a fourth wave, and since the last briefing, one country, Togo, uh, is experiencing a fourth wave. For a fifth wave, we are seeing 22 countries on the continent that have reported, um, that have experienced a fifth wave. And since the last time that we updated you, two additional countries, that is Cote d'Ivoire and Guinea, have ex started experiencing a fifth wave. So you'll see that the numbers um, in terms of new waves are actually increasing on the continent. Two member states, that is Kenya and Mauritius, are experiencing 
a sixth wave, and there is no change from last week. In terms of the variants of concern that have been reported across the continent, there is no change um, in the information we shared uh, last week, which is a good thing that the variants are not, there are no new variants that are being documented, not just on the continent, but also globally. Let's look at the trends over the last one week. And uh, when we look at epidemiological week 25, and that is the week of 20 to 26 of June, and we compare it with uh, AP week 24, we see that a total of 47,716 new cases were reported on the continent of Africa, which is a 19% increase from the previous week. The highest proportion of new cases is from the Northern Africa region with 51% of the cases. The other regions are reporting as follows. Southern Africa region with 24% of the new cases. Eastern Africa region, 16%. Western Africa region, 8%. And Central African region with 1%. The five countries that are reporting the highest numbers of cases during this AP Week 25 are Morocco with 18,588, South Africa with 7,803, with 4,477, Ethiopia with 3,292, and Kenya with 2,000. 874. In terms of the highest daily incidence per million population, the countries reporting the highest of this average per million population include Seychelles at 568, Cabo Verde 356, Morocco 70, that is 70, Tunisia 65, and South Africa, 18, and that is 1.8. Looking at new deaths during this AP Week 25, a total of 261 new deaths were reported in Africa, compared to 197 during the previous week. And unfortunately, this represents a 33% increase in the new deaths compared to the previous week. When we look at the four-week trend, um, the following is the analysis that we are getting. There has been an overall 11% average increase in the new cases reported on the continent over the last four weeks, with the following distribution by region. 92% increase in the Northern Africa region. 62% increase in the Western Africa region, 39% increase in the Eastern Africa region, 17% decrease in the Central Africa region, and 16% decrease in the Southern Africa region. The following is a breakdown by the most populous countries on the continent. 
Ethiopia, 97% average increase. Kenya, 84% average increase. Nigeria, 34% average increase. The DRC, 23% average increase. Egypt, 100% average decrease. And South Africa, 37% average decrease. When we look at the number of new deaths during this four-week period, there has been an overall 4% average increase in new deaths on the continent. When we break it down by region, we see a 371% increase in the Eastern Africa region, 135% increase in the West, increase in the Northern Africa region, 59% decrease in the Central Africa region, and 1% decrease in the Southern Africa region. When we look at these deaths by the most populous countries on the continent, Ethiopia had a 163% average increase, South Africa 6% average decrease, while Egypt, Nigeria, and Kenya, there was no change. Looking at COVID-19 testing and medical supplies, to date, over 110,590,000 tests have been conducted in Africa. Over 523,000 new tests were reported for the AP Week 25, that is 20 to 26 of June 2022, and this is a 38% increase from the previous week when we had only 378,000 tests being reported. The cumulative positivity rate is 11%, and the test per case ratio stands at 9.4. During AP Week 25, the positivity rate is 9% and the test per case ratio is 11, 11, which is similar to last week. Seven countries on the continent are reporting a test positivity rate that is higher than 12% AP 25 week. On vaccination for COVID-19, The total number of vaccine doses that have been supplied to the continent stand at 843 million. And these have been distributed in 54 of um, our member states. 607 million of these COVID-19 vaccines have been administered, have been administered to members of the public, and this corresponds to 72% of the total supply in Africa being uh, administered. Coverage to date is at 18.4% of Africa's population has been fully vaccinated. Looking at the top 10 of our Africa Union member states in terms of vaccination, we see that the the changes that have happened since uh, last week include 
Rwanda, which now stands at 63.7%, Morocco, which stands at 61.8%, Botswana at 61.7%, Mozambique at 43.7%, Sao Tome and Principe at 41.5%. The highest rate of fully vaccinated population remains Seychelles at 81.1%, and that has not changed since last week and Mauritius at 76.5. Again, this has not changed since last week. For deliveries um, that are being done through the AVAT mechanism, we have so far delivered 61,476,700 doses of Johnson & Johnson uh, COVID-19 vaccines to 35 African Union member states. Um, and um, the latest deliveries uh, during June were 6.4 million doses that went to four of our member states, that is Cameroon, Madagascar, Nigeria, and Sierra Leone. We continue to deliver um, the vaccines uh, that are procured through the AVAT mechanism um, based on um, the uh, production at uh, the factory level and, of course, uh, on agreement with our member states so that we do not get any vaccines that are expiring in our hands. 39 of our countries are actually offering booster doses currently based on different protocols at country level, um, and uh, three countries are offering a second booster dose and that is, remains Tunisia, South Africa, and Seychelles. Um, Let's move now to the monkeypox situation. Globally, it is being reported that 4,769 confirmed cases and one death of monkeypox have been reported from 49 countries that are not endemic to monkeypox and are outside of Africa and largely in Europe and North America. The situation on the continent continues to evolve, and um, currently we have um, 12 countries um, on the continent that actually have reported uh, monkeypox in the following manner. For this year, 2022, 1,782 cases have been reported on the continent, with 1,678 of these being suspected cases and 104 being confirmed cases. Unfortunately, 73 deaths have been uh, as a result of infection by monkeypox, which comes to a a case fatality rate of 4.1%. These are being reported in eight endemic Africa Union member states and three non-endemic Africa Union member states. To date, Benin, Morocco, and South Africa are the three non-endemic AU member states that are reporting confirmed cases, while the um, endemic countries that are reporting 
um, monkeypox include Cameroon, uh, the Central African Republic, uh, the Congo Republic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Liberia, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Ghana, Benin, Morocco, and South Africa. These are the 11 countries that are reporting um, monkeypox on the continent. In terms of our response as Africa CDC to the monkeypox um, uh, outbreaks, um, one is recently we issued a press briefing um, um, that details uh, the situation on the continent, including um, our efforts as Africa CDC and the Africa Union in responding to this uh, multiple country outbreak. And we continue to very closely monitor the situation on the continent, and we are in touch with our counterparts uh, in Europe and North America, indeed everywhere in the world where um, uh, cases have been reported because there are cases that have been, have been reported in the Asian side of uh, the globe as well. Secondly is we are actively preparing um, our member states to have the capacity um, to make laboratory diagnosis for monkeypox and uh, um, for the last three days we have been holding a training um, in Nigeria in collaboration with the Africa Society for Laboratory Medicine as well as the Nigeria CDC. We are training 20 of our Africa Union member states um, on um, monkeypox diagnostics. And when that meeting ends, we'll also be providing um, these facilities that we have trained with the test kits so that they are able to do um, the laboratory testing within their own countries. And this is um, very important because it immediately improves the capability of our member states uh, to confirm suspected uh, cases. As you have noticed, many of our cases are, clinic, are being clinically diagnosed and uh, the laboratory confirmation because of lack of capacity has been slow to come, but this is going to change after this particular training uh, that is ending today um, in uh, Abuja in Nigeria. Our Institute for Pathogen Genomics is also coordinating very closely with our um, uh, centers of excellence for uh, uh, sequencing so that we are keeping an eye on any um, variants that may be um, uh, documented in any of our countries and we continue to sequence um, uh, these uh, samples for monkeypox just as we did for COVID-19 to ensure that we understand and know the kind of pathogen that we are dealing with on the continent. Um, on um, um, preparing countries, four countries have requested emergency preparedness and response um, support uh, from um, uh, the Africa CDC, and um, we are working with them to provide the areas of support that they have requested uh, from the Africa CDC. Let me add that um, as we continue to provide more detailed information relating to COVID-19 and monkeypox, we are also dealing with other outbreaks across the continent. 
These include influenza, the H3N2 variant, vaccine-derived polio, Lassa fever, measles, cholera, hepatitis E, and yellow fever. So although we are focusing on monkeypox and COVID-19, these other seven different um, uh, disease outbreaks are also keeping Africa CDC and the member states uh, quite busy in terms of preparedness and response. At the same time, as Africa CDC, um, we are acutely aware that the pandemic of HIV is still very much with us here on the continent. And although for many years it has now been described as endemic, we see an opportunity for um, renewed efforts to go into the HIV pandemic on the continent, utilizing the lessons that we have learned during COVID-19 and Ebola um, responses to um, um, improve the momentum uh, that countries have put in place for HIV prevention and control. And as Africa CDC, we are discussing with our member states and the various stakeholders to see how we can be able to bring our comparative strength and advantage into this space of the uh, ongoing HIV uh, pandemic, um, particularly here on the continent of Africa. Let me add that um, uh, yesterday, for the last two days, ending yesterday, we have had the um, uh, committee, uh, the sectoral technical committee responsible for justice and legal affairs, uh, also discuss, consider, and um, uh, adopt uh, the um, operationalization of Africa CDC, the transition into an autonomous um, institution of the union, and um, um, uh, after that particular endorsement by the senior officials within the Justice and Legal Affairs Sectoral Technical Committee, the ministers of Justice and Legal Affairs, as well as attorneys generals from across the continent, are going to be meeting next week on Ju- July the 4th uh, to make the final determination before that proposal is sent to the Executive Council later on. Uh, on July 14th and 15th for consideration. So there is quite some good progress with uh, the operationalization and the transition of Africa CDC into an autonomous um, body. Wayne, I think this is what I had for today and I'm happy to uh, respond to any questions. Thank you very much. Uh, That was Dr. Ahmed Ogwell, the Acting Director of the Africa CDC. Now we are into our question and answer section. Let me just give you the WhatsApp number again to guide you on where you can send 9455023102519454 plus 2519455023. We also take questions through our WhatsApp, through our question and answer section, as well as through your online and live requests. Now, let me start with the questions that have come in from Judith Akolo, who is with the Kenya Broadcasting. She has sent in three questions. I'm going to start by combining her 
two questions and then perhaps come back to the third one. So she says, my question is, um, Dr. Ahmed, you just said that new, no new variant has been reported on the continent, nor globally. What do we say of this situation? Does it mean that the virus is no longer mutating? Now, the related question that she has to that is, um, she says, since there are no new variants, can we say that we are now seeing the beginning of the end of the COVID-19 pandemic? So I'll put those to you now and then come back to the other one a bit later. No, thank you. Thank you, Judith, for those questions. Um, the absence of documentation of new variants does not mean that um, the virus is now not mutating. Um, it could very well be that uh, we have not yet detected a, mut uh, a, a mutation, and um, the absence of that uh, being um, documented within our laboratories does not mean that it is no longer mutating. Uh, secondly, is uh, the absence of mutations does not mean the, vi the, the, the pandemic is over. All the other variants are still um, circulating within our populations, and you can see the figures are rising again. Countries are going into new waves, um, and um, the absence of mutations uh, does not mean that the, the older variants that are still in circulation have stopped causing uh, difficulties with those that they infect and also challenges to the health systems uh, across the continent. Indeed, um, what usually happens is when you have a situation where you have lower figures, that is when you're supposed to prepare yourself just in case it comes back. We're supposed to increase our vaccination. We're supposed to ensure that uh, members of the public appreciate um, um, how to take care of themselves uh, to reduce the risks of getting infected. We are supposed to strengthen our healthcare systems, and we are also supposed to be coming up with uh, um, uh, more easily available therapies and vaccines um, so that when the numbers start rising again, then we have effective tools to be able to respond. The absence of new variants, although it is good news, is not the absence of the pandemic. The pandemic is still here with us, and we must uh, take care um, as members of the public to ensure that we limit uh, and even stop the transmission of the of the existing uh, variants. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ahmed. And I'm sure that our colleague Judith would have listened to your earlier uh, comments where you mentioned that there has been an increase uh, across the continent in the number of infections of COVID-19. All right, let's uh, talk to Paul Adepoju, who is joining us online. Paul, good morning. Good morning, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to ask my question. So my first question has to do with uh, monkeypox. Uh, today you mentioned that there are over 1,600 suspected cases, but only 104 confirmed cases. So uh, in clearer terms, why is there a very wide gap between the number of confirmed cases and suspected cases? And uh, for these cases where we know, uh, can we have an idea of the proportion of the suspected cases that are tested positive so that we can have a much clearer picture of the state of the outbreak in Africa? Then I would like to know the latest on uh, the Africa Citizens Quest 
to be able to declare uh, outbreaks of public health importance on the continent. And we have um, an, a status update on that progress. And you mentioned HIV being a top priority for Africa CDC. Now, what will this focus on HIV by the Africa CDC clearly look like? Thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, the challenge essentially is, is this usually means that um, uh, appropriate training is not yet widespread. And the test kills of uh, high index of suspicion to be able to um, identify those cases that present in a manner that clinically uh, will be uh, fitting uh, a monkeypox case. And the reason why we have low numbers of um, uh, confirmed cases is because we are not sending all the samples uh, for a laboratory diagnosis because of the capacity issues. And that is why during this week we are providing the training and then we are also providing the test kits. In this way, we'll have uh, many more laboratories with the capacity to be able to do uh, a laboratory diagnosis uh, of monkeypox. Uh, in as far as um, how many cases are being tested, um, um, uh, usually um, all those that have been um, uh, identified as having clinical symptoms that um, are um, uh, presenting like a monkeypox case are isolated and um, we term them as suspected cases uh, until such a time as um, either the symptoms have been uh, controlled or um, a laboratory testing has been done, then we can be able to say that to confirm or uh, that they have the, the virus or they don't have the virus. But at the moment, we are doing such low testing that um, uh, saying that uh, a certain proportion has tested positive and a certain proportion has tested negative is uh, uh, not uh, very possible because of the low numbers of testing that we are doing. As you can see, out of the 104, over 1,600, uh, compared to over 1,600 that have not been tested. So as we increase our testing capacity, we for uh, Africa CDC to be able to make uh, declarations of public health uh, uh, emergencies of continental security is concerned, this is being revealed. It has passed through our ministers of health. I'm quite confident that um, uh, the instruction from the heads of states to make Africa CDC autonomous, stronger, uh, with the full ability to take care of the health security of the continent uh, is going to be reflected in that statute when it is adopted uh, in mid-July. Uh, so we don't expect that there's going to be any change. In as far as HIV is concerned, for many years now, um, HIV has been treated as endemic and therefore is in the background of a lot of what we've learned during this season of um, uh, the pandemic and uh, the outbreaks of Ebola particularly is that if we don't approach um, a disease as an emergency, then we don't 
put in place enough um, governance and uh, political structures uh, to address those challenges. What we as Africa City are doing is we want to bring um, the urgency once again into addressing HIV um, and uh, we are quite um, uh, confident that working with all those stakeholders that are already within the field, uh, making this uh, look like an emergency, ensuring that African countries are taking more responsibility for uh, HIV, um, we are going to see um, uh, more momentum uh, in addressing HIV as an emergency so that we can be able to control it much faster uh, than we are doing now. Thank you. Back to you, Ray. Thank you very much, Ahmed. We go now to Johannesburg. Uh, where we say good morning to James Macharia Chege, who is with the Reuters. And uh, James says, Dr. Omar, monkeypox is not yet a global health emergency. Uh, this according to the WHO, which ruled on Saturday. Although that uh, the WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus had said that he was deeply concerned about the out- outbreak. Then he adds, when we spoke last week, you intimated that it was already an emergency in Africa. So what is your reaction to the position of the WHO? Now, thank you, James. Um, WHO, the Emergency Committee on uh, um, uh, on IHR, have their uh, processes and procedures, and um, we respect uh, the advice that they give to the Director General of WHO and uh, working within uh, that context, um, we as uh, Africa CDC, looking at the numbers, looking at um, the deaths, looking at um, the number of countries that are affected, looking at the risk profile um, uh, in countries that are related or close to uh, the epicenters of, uh, of monkeypox, uh, this particular outbreak for us remains an emergency, and uh, we are treating it and responding to it as an emergency. We don't want to wait for numbers to be big, particularly deaths. We don't want to wait for uh, economic disruption to occur. Uh, we want to be able to address uh, monkeypox as an emergency now so that it does not cause uh, more pain and suffering, not only to the healthcare system, but also to the economic um, a fabric of uh, the continent of Africa. So um, uh, we are approaching this as an emergency, and we will continue to do so until we bring uh, the monkeypox outbreak under control here on the continent, and um, of course uh, globally as well. All right. Thank you, Ahmed. We still have we have just one more question that uh, is recorded here. So, colleagues, if anyone has a question that they want to ask about the pandemics. Uh, please uh, start to send in your questions uh, through that WhatsApp number, which is uh, plus 251-94-550-2310. Alternatively, you also send in your questions uh, through the question and answer platform. All right, so the one question that we have left is uh, from Judith Arcolo. That's a repeat question. And she says, Dr. Ahmed, you just said that no new variant has been reported on the continent, no globally. No, I do believe that you've already answered this question because she was asking, does it mean that the virus is no longer mutating? 
So this question has been responded to. I remember that Judith had sent in three questions. Let me just try to locate all of them. All right, she said, my question is that in Kenya, there is a fever that presents itself almost like COVID-19. What can we say of? Um, no, thanks, Judith. Um, many different um, illnesses will present with a fever. And um, if the fevers uh, present similar to um, those that we are seeing in COVID-19, for example, the arbitra is a test. So we need to test the individuals and confirm or otherwise um, indicate if it is COVID or not. This is the easiest way of separating um, uh, the issue of whether the fever is as a result of COVID or not. In any case, if it is not COVID, we still have tests that will be able to confirm to us what is causing that particular fever. In this way, we can be able to identify the um, uh, offending pathogen and then deal with it uh, appropriately. Um, however, uh, from Kenya, we have not yet documented uh, any uh, new um, a pathogen that is causing uh, fever um, uh, illnesses that are similar uh, to those of COVID. Um, and uh, you also will be aware that uh, this is the flu season in this belt of the world when it becomes a little bit colder. Uh, and therefore, um, uh, the flu is uh, spreading, causing fever as well. COVID is spreading, causing fever as well. And it is important that anyone who has a fever um, uh, uh, is tested for covid so that we know that at least it is not or we know it is and the management can be appropriate for uh, whichever diagnosis the laboratory uh, has confirmed an individual to have. We do not at the moment have any information regarding any new type of infection that is causing fever uh, in Kenya. All right. Uh, thanks, Ahmed. Janice Q from Bloomberg. How concerned is the Africa CDC about food security and how this may limit access to health services across Africa? Uh, no, thanks, thanks, Janice. Um, health is very tied to good nutrition. And when our populations do not have good nutrition, by and large, it means their immunity will be reduced and therefore they and be able to get infected by different types of uh, diseases much more easily. Food security is therefore the beginning of that um, uh, health security. This way, we um, leave it to authorities within nationally to be able to address the issues of food security. And um, whenever uh, we have the opportunity to um, engage with the competent authorities. Uh, if food if food security becomes a challenge for health security, we do pass our concerns. Uh, but at the moment, uh, what I would say is that um, um, the competent authorities are handling issues of food security on the continent, and we are working closely with them to ensure that food security does not result in health security, and vice versa. Health security does not result into a, a food a security uh, challenge. All right, uh, thank you. And um, I just want to add there, Janice, 
that uh, when Dr. Ahmed talks about the competent authorities, he's also talking about the African Union, which has declared this year the year of nutrition as the theme uh, continentally, and that a lot of our meetings and the summits being held this year will have that uh, element of nutrition uh, as security Ahmed has just mentioned. All right, so let's move on. And um, we have some repeat questions. Um, James Chege has been asking, are you disappointed with the decision of the WHO? I believe that this question has already been covered extensively. Uh, let's move on to him. And he says, could you give us an update on whether sufficient vaccines or treatments are available on the continent and secondly would you know if some countries including the united kingdom and the united states have offered to share their vaccines from their stockpiles so those are two additional questions from james chege um no thank you james <clears throat> at the moment we do not have any vaccines for monkeypox on the continent um, test kits are in short supply, and that is why you see very large numbers of suspected cases vis-a-vis -vis confirmed cases. So both these um, uh, tools, that is test kits and uh, vaccines for monkeypox, are uh, really required on the continent in optimal numbers so that you can know the true burden, and at the same time, we can be able to protect particularly those who are in the front line of looking after um, uh, those, uh, the, the patients that are suffering from monkeypox, as well as communities that are at high risk. Therapies, um, we do have uh, therapies at the moment, um, and um, uh, as the numbers grow, of course, the need also um, will increase. For the second question, uh, to the best of my knowledge, there has been no offer made, not through Africa CDC anyway, for uh, any um, country to share um, vaccine, stockpiled vaccines uh, with African uh, countries. And we do encourage, we do encourage uh, making available of uh, vaccines uh, as an important tool in the fight to limit the spread of monkeypox, not just here on the continent, but globally. All right. Thank you, Ahmed. Paula Depoju, I see your hand is up. Do you have a second question for us? Yes, please. Uh, thank you very much. So I like your thoughts uh, responding to a recent uh, announcement by the African Development Bank that launched the Africa Pharmaceutical Technology Foundation. And um, in... Uh, by extension, similar initiatives that are aimed at uh, ensuring that Africa is able to uh, stop outsourcing healthcare security. But it seems that if most of these initiatives are geared towards um, local production of um, initiatives or products that have been developed elsewhere, uh, what is the aspect or what is in place to also improve research um, into uh, that would ensure Africa's healthcare security. For instance, vaccine production, even though we are looking at 
setting up vaccine sites in Africa. But most of these initiatives are not those that are based on locally researched products, which is the reason why the trips waiver continues to be high on the agenda. So um, what, what, what are our thoughts regarding these elements and uh, what can be done to be able to improve this aspect of healthcare security in Africa? Thank you. Now, thank you. Thank you, Paul. Um, the launch of the um, Africa Pharmaceutical Technology uh, Foundation by the Africa Development Bank is welcome. And um, we welcome it in the context of Africa's ambition to manufacture uh, its own health products. So in this way, it is um, uh, uh, a step in the very right direction. Um, your point around we are aiming for local production producing what uh, has been um, researched and developed elsewhere uh, in the short term is correct, but in the medium and long term it will change. Um, our um, uh, approach to local production is in three phases. The emergency phase is even fill and finish. Uh, will be fine for vaccines. Uh, indeed, um, final packaging of health products here on the continent is fine in the emergency phase. In the medium term is to start to um, produce from scratch um, what has been developed elsewhere. Um, and in the long term is to have our own research institutions to come up with our own products that then we can be able to take through to production ready for market. So it is a journey. And as President Kagame said uh, in late December when we were launching the Partnership for African Vaccines Manufacturing uh, Phase 2, um, that this is an opportunity. But for us, when we say we want to do it ourselves, it doesn't mean that we are going to do it alone. We still need technology transfer. Uh, we still need intellectual property um, uh, uh, sharing. We still need the WTO TRIPS flexibilities to be able to grow the manufacturing enterprise here on the continent of Africa. As we do that, we are also working with the member states so that research is going on. And you'll be surprised that um, there are at least, um, um, by my count, at least nine different uh, vaccine candidates for COVID-19 that have been developed from scratch here on the continent. Um, uh, and it tells you our research and development uh, side of um, our work is expanding. Indeed, um, the, what we are communicating to our member states is as they, as they put up the infrastructure for manufacturing, they should also be investing in R&D so that the next generation are actually going to be developing uh, from scratch health products and then producing them here on the continent. So these two are going in parallel and uh, the progress is uh, very encouraging and um, we are looking forward to even more countries uh, and even more partners from outside of Africa working with institutions here on the continent to ensure that R&D happens on the continent and then uh, the actual manufacturing ready for market uh, also happens here on the continent. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ahmed. Um, a repeat question that is coming through from Janice Q of Bloomberg. And she says, regarding the monkeypox vaccines, last week you said that Africa should be in front of the queue. And I take it that's in front of the queue to um, 
receive or obtain vaccines. So her question is, how is that going? And then she adds, the United States this week has said that anyone who thinks they have been exposed to monkeypox can get a vaccine. Um, uh, thank you, Janice. I will not um, be able to respond to um, the, um, uh, the pronouncements from the from the United States, but I will tell you that uh, here on the continent, we are engaging with all those institutions and countries that have um, a monkeypox vaccine. The intention is, as is practical, uh, monkeypox vaccines for us to use uh, where we uh, require them. Um, indeed, um, if we are able to control um, the spread of monkeypox from the source, particularly in the endemic countries, then other countries beyond Africa, beyond the endemic countries, are going to be safer rather than wait for exposure elsewhere in the world and then um, uh, administering the vaccines. The best place to have the vaccines is in the front lines here in Africa before it spreads to other parts of the world. It's the most effective way of controlling any outbreak at source. Uh, we welcome all um, uh, support that will be able to come from institutions and countries that have uh, stockpiles of vaccines so that those can be able to come to Africa and Africa can be able to equitably also access uh, these life-saving tools for public health. Uh, Thank you very much. One last uh, quick question from James Chege. We have monkeypox cases breaking out in non-endemic African countries, including Benin, Morocco, and South Africa. Does the Africa CDC have an idea why we have this trend happening, especially as some of these cases involve people who have no recent travel history? No, thanks. Thanks, James. Um, The world has become very connected. And um, therefore, viruses, uh, bacteria, and other uh, pathogens will travel with human beings across the world. The fact that we are now diagnosing uh, monkeypox beyond the endemic um, uh, areas is a testimony to the fact that we need to work together to secure um, not just the continent, but also the globe from uh, public health uh, emergencies of this type. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, the fact that we are seeing some of the cases with no history of travel is not a surprise because monkeypox has a relatively long half-life before you see or feel the, um, uh, the symptoms. So in this way, someone can spread it to several people without them themselves knowing that they have it. And by the time that the second or third person uh, has, been, uh, has contracted the virus, then they cannot be able to link it to the original person that traveled. But the virus certainly comes from uh, a reservoir. It will go to one individual, and that individual will continue to pass it on to others. And this is a very clear message that we need to be working together to ensure that important uh, diagnostic kits and uh, uh, vaccines are made available to areas where numbers are big, that way we can be able to contain the outbreak within those areas. So yes, any spread uh, outside of uh, endemic countries is a concern because 
uh, with more exposure in non-endemic countries, it means the challenges of bringing the outbreak, um, uh, the emergency under control becomes, uh, um, uh, the effort becomes larger. Uh, so the sooner that we are able to control the outbreaks where they are now without going into newer communities and newer countries, the better it is for public health, the better it is for health security globally. Thank you very, very much, Ahmed. It's time now for you to give us a roundup of the main points that you want uh, colleague journalists uh, to take away from our briefing today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Wayne. And um, um, the first key um, item is vaccination for COVID-19. Um, as Africa CDC, we have um, uh, launched the Saving Lives and Livelihoods implementation uh, in Ethiopia two weeks ago. We are going into new countries now, including Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda in the next phase. Uh, and more countries are going to be joining on a weekly basis. And um, the mass vaccination campaign is to is designed to, re, to for us to be able to reach the goal of 70% within the timeline that we had set. So this is one thing that um, I would like to emphasize uh, for the journalists, uh, that the Saving Lives and Livelihoods uh, initiative is fully rolled out now, and we are going progressively into more and more countries. Um, for monkeypox, um, uh, I would like to emphasize that um, it is a growing concern for us at the Africa CDC and the Africa Union that the numbers continue to increase, not just of individually uh, affected uh, persons, but also in the number of countries that are getting affected. This is a concern. Um, monkeypox is an emergency here on the continent, and we are calling upon uh, all our friends and partners uh, to um, uh, uh, join us in uh, controlling um, uh, this outbreak, in controlling this emergency, and using all available tools, including making available test kits, making available vaccines, so that we are able to bring monkeypox uh, under control as soon as is possible. And third is to say that um, uh, for um, uh, HIV uh, and AIDS, um, although we have categorized it as endemic, which is true, um, we need uh, just that new motivation, that new momentum of handling HIV and AIDS as an emergency so that we can be able to bring to uh, to the table new tools, uh, new innovations, uh, new uh, commitments um, uh, by our, our our leaders, and we can be able to take more control of uh, HIV and AIDS as um, uh, an emergency here uh, on the continent. These are the three things I would like to end in summary way. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Ahmed Ogwell giving us a breakdown of uh, the situation of uh, COVID-19 and a number of other pandemics uh, that are currently being managed on the continent. And also just to thank you there for giving us a rundown of the capacity building programs that are being undertaken by the Africa CDC, which is an institution of the African Union, to make sure that we safeguard uh, the health of the continent and also to make sure that member states are fully capacitated to deal with these challenges. Thank you so much for that. And uh, thank you, colleagues, for joining us for the past one hour. Thank you to colleagues within the African Union and Africa CDC for bringing this broadcast to us and keeping us in touch. Uh, but as usual, we will be back with you on Thursday next week at the same time. So let us meet then. Bye-bye for now.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, extensive briefing from the African uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, located in at the afternoon headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, discussing uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the recent uh, outbreak of monkeypox, and the view of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and contrast to the view of the World Health Organization in regard to monkeypox. Uh, they discussed HIV uh, as well as other issues. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Motown sound of um, Marvelettes, uh, You're the One, uh, from Detroit's own uh, Motown sound, the Marvelettes uh, from Inkster, uh, right outside Detroit. And uh, right now we want to go into our concluding segment. Uh, we'll listen to uh, a recent episode of The World Today, uh, discussing uh, the recently held 
NATO summit uh, that took place in Madrid, uh, Spain, earlier this week, uh, among other issues. Let's listen in. Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Turkey drops veto over NATO aid by Sweden and Finland, but internal conflicts remain within the military bloc. Iran's foreign ministry confirms that the country has filed an application for accession to the BRICS. And the former top White House aide testified in U.S. Congress to then-President Donald Trump's fury over the 2020 election. You're listening to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. Turkey changed its position and agreed to support Sweden and Finland's NATO membership applications on Tuesday during the ongoing NATO summit in Madrid. But conflicts within the military bloc still remain. After an extended meeting among leaders from the three countries together with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg on Tuesday afternoon, a trilateral memorandum addressing Turkey's security concerns was agreed upon and signed. This paves the way for the two Nordic states' NATO bid. According to NATO, all 30 members must approve a country's bid for it to be accepted into the alliance. Rounds of talks have been held in the past weeks at both Ankara and NATO headquarters in Brussels, aiming to resolve differences among the two Nordic states and Turkey. Despite Turkey's green light on Tuesday, Stoltenberg admitted that conflicts within the military bloc still remain. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Zhao Hai from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you, Dr. Zhao, for talking to us again. Thank you. Now, Dr. Turkish official revealed that uh, in exchange for Turkey's green lighting, the two Nordic countries agreed not to provide military support to uh, Kurdish fighters in Syria that Turkey views as terrorists. Also, these two countries will halt support for the Gulen movement. Now, Doctor, what does that tell us about, you know, the previous position by this by Sweden and Finland over these two critical issues? And are they exchanging their previous position for military benefits within the NATO? Well, uh, obviously, before this agreement, uh, the two Nordic states have different positions than uh, the Turkey government. So uh, they do not openly uh, deny that they support Kurdish forces in Syria. However, they also didn't provide the uh, significant or major support to the Kurdish forces as well. So in order to exchange for their uh, NATO membership extensions uh, and uh, uh, get rid of the bloc by the Turkish government, they actually agreed on this uh, very simple uh, sort of uh, withdrawal from the previous position uh, so that now they can agree upon uh, the same position on the uh, Turkish forces in that area. Mm. I just want to remind one thing, uh, that mm. actually the major support of Tur- uh, Kurdish forces in that area was the United States. And mm. the U.S. actually, mm. after withdrawing, uh, particularly after the uh, end of the Trump administration, has already withdrawn their support. So in that respect, it's not very difficult for those Nordic states to agree with Turkey position. Mm. Well, now, uh, some say that Turkey is becoming one of the biggest winners in this process. I mean, what did Turkey gain, do you think? 
Well, it's very obvious that, that uh, the Turkish president, Erdogan, uh, won a major uh, success for his domestic uh, support. Because now, uh, with those two states agreeing on the Turkish position on uh, Kurdish forces, uh, he can declare victory uh, by allowing those two countries uh, to uh, join NATO at the same time, uh, getting those countries agreed on uh, the positions with Turkey. So that domestically, uh, Erdogan can say, I have won a great success by persuading uh, the countries that uh, outside NATO now agreeing with us. I think moving forward with so many difficulties domestically uh, at hand, this major uh, success will give uh, support uh, to this current Turkish government. Mm. Now, Doctor, how does this expansion of NATO in Nordic part of Europe, uh, you know, how will that affect the situation in Europe? Does it make uh, Nordic Europe safer or more precarious? Well, uh, I think it depends on who you ask, because <laughs> right now the Swedish government and the fin- uh, Finland government uh, obviously, obviously saw uh, Russia as a threat. Mm. Uh, and they feel unsafe. That's why uh, the majority of their people wanted to join NATO. Uh, however, if you look at the current position of the Russian uh, military forces, uh, obviously the border between Finland and Russia were less guarded and it's quite safe. So after the uh, two countries join NATO, actually these border area will be, become more tense and uh, uh, more, uh, more likely to attend to conflict because now NATO moving is border between uh, Russia and NATO countries uh, to the current Finland border with Russia. Mm. So Russia has already decided to move more strategic weapons uh, and more troops to that area. And I think it makes uh, objectively uh, actually less safer for those two countries. Right, right. Now, uh, Dr. NATO previously declared that the bloc intends to label China as a systemic challenge in its newest strategic concept. Now, what is NATO, which is an organization, an organization not even geographically you know, located within the Pacific, trying to achieve by involving in this, uh, in this China game or American game against China? Well, NATO is a transatlantic military alliance and it's a legacy of the Cold War. Mm. So at this point, the expansion of NATO uh, and also to include China into NATO's new concepts itself is uh, not reasonable and doesn't make any sense. However, uh, I mean, the United States wanted to treat China as a major competitor, uh, challenger to the current so-called rules-based international order. And therefore, the U.S. wanted uh, the European countries to be on board. And in exchange uh, for you know, the current situation to, to counter the threat of, of Russia, uh, the European countries have to agree at some point uh, with the U.S. position that uh, China is somehow a threat to NATO countries. They have to create an exaggerated China threat. For instance, they name China as a major cyber uh, threat, mm-hmm. and also they uh, uh, name China's uh, maritime claims as somehow threatening uh, to NATO countries. So at this point, I think uh, it is very much uh, Europe-Americans' mutual need uh, to benefit each other and name China as a potential threat that can actually bring them closer together and, and you know, out of necessity. Mm. Now, Doctor, how do you think China should respond to NATO's aim vis-a-vis China? I mean, by how, I meant two aspects. One is how should China respond to this kind of uh, 
uh, threat rhetoric created by NATO, that you know China is a threat. And the second aspect is how do you think China should respond in terms of uh, you know fostering a more stable security architecture in Asia? So now NATO is close to 30 countries, and with further expansion,、uh, and also、uh, with partnership around the globe, it's becoming a global、uh, sort of security organization. However, if you look at these countries, they have very different、uh, security needs and the perception of threat. So I think the best strategy for China is to persuade many countries that have actually no、uh, conflict of interest with China, and particularly with no. Geopolitical conflict with China to see the fact that China is actually an opportunity, not a threat,、mm. uh, and that way NATO cannot unify against China. And in many ways, we have to distinguish or separate individual NATO countries' activities and NATO as a whole. So I think、mm. overall, it's very much difficult to for NATO countries to reach consensus uh, to uh, actually. Uh, you know, going into conflict directly with China.、Mm. What about you know China's efforts? What kind of effort China should make in terms of、uh, you know making in general making the Asia Pacific more peaceful for China and for you know countries within the region? Well,、uh, President Xi just uh, recently uh, raised uh, a proposal for global、uh, security initiative,、mm-hmm. and I think China will, based on that concept. To expand global partnership to support peace and development,、uh, only if con- countries and people see that、uh, China's proposal and initiative is more reasonable and more、uh, of the future,、uh, you know, more according to their vision of the future,、uh, then countries can unite against this Cold War mentality. And I in, and I think in that process,、uh, China will find a way to counter this uh, uh, NATO expansion and also a more、uh, I think worse security situation in the world.、Mm. Now, Doctor, still on that, some say that、uh, alliance making is still the dominant value of security in our world.、Uh, some say it's outdated, but others say that、uh, alliance making is still dominant because if you don't make alliance with other people,、uh, it will mean that、uh, you know you are not powerful enough to make、uh, an, any actual influence. Now, what's your take on that? Well, that's a very difficult theoretical、uh, question. Actually, in today's world,、uh, small countries, in particular, are having a hard time finding a、uh, you know security position、uh, because, on the one hand,、uh, they understand once they join、uh, a particular security bloc,、uh, it's very dangerous that the other side uh, will uh, form another bloc, and and、uh, blocs can go into war very easily. And that's historical experience. However, without an organization, a single,、uh, particularly smaller countries will will fear that they don't have enough resources to defend themselves. So that's why our global security initiative is so important because we emphasize security must be common and、mm. must be you know indivisible.、Uh, and countries should、uh, collectively defend world peace instead of dividing into different camps and fighting with each other. Uh, so I think that's the future, and、uh, of course we need to persuade people to see that, and also to create,、uh, you know, institutions that will,、uh, based on that concept, and support countries to pursue peace. And right now, I think、uh, it's very difficult,、uh, and it needs a long time.、Mm.
Indeed, but uh, certainly, I think uh, a lot of attention is currently being paid on President Xi Jinping's Global Security Initiative. Thank you, Doctor, for talking to us. That was Dr. Zhao Hai from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. After the break, Iran has applied to join BRICS. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. With the great efforts made by the staff today, become one of the great platforms for policy debates and information dissemination. And I wish today have an even brighter and greater tomorrow. This is World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. A spokesperson with Iran's foreign ministry said earlier this week that the country has filed an application for accession to the BRICS. The spokesperson said Iran's entry would bring additional value to all emerging economies group members, including Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. China's foreign ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian said at Wednesday's daily briefing that as the BRICS chair for this year, China actively supports BRICS in starting the membership expansion process. He said China will work with BRICS partners to steadily advance the process. BRICS countries constitute over 40% of the world's population and about 26% of global economy. For more, we are now joined by Dr. Guy Bird, an adjunct professor at the Department of International Affairs of Vassalius College in Brussels. Thank you, Dr. Burton, for talking to us again. Thank you. Now, first up, Doctor, what does Iran want from a membership within BRICS? Well, I think really what's very important for Iran here is international recognition. And given their current situation, especially uh, with their rivalry over the United States, especially over the nuclear, pro, uh, nuclear deal that's currently being negotiated, I think this is a way of demonstrating in a short-term way that they're not isolated and that they have the political support. Um, so I think there's, there's, a, there's, a wider ele- there's a wider conversation going on uh, around uh, Iran's membership of BRICS, which actually consider, involves Iran's position in the global economy and, and politic- politics more generally. Mm. What about, you know, the actual economic and and benefits in global governance if Iran does become a member? Well, so Iran is slightly larger in terms of its GDP than South Africa, which Mm. is the smallest of the uh, economies that make up BRICS. But if we are looking, obviously the BRICS has often been portrayed as as a group of emerging uh, markets, of emerging economies, so it's always had that economic dimension to it. And if we were going to look at, in terms of the size of of economies, then there probably are some more sort of credible um, candidates out there, like Mexico or Indonesia or South Korea, which are much larger than Mm. Iran. On the other hand, as you pointed out in your in your Mm. presentation about the BRICS. You know, the BRICS is very much about representing, you know, the wider wider economy and not not solely the Western one. And the fact that it makes up forty percent of the population uh, of the world and around twenty six percent of GDP, that means that, you know, the more members you have, the more representative uh, membership would become. Mm, indeed. Then what about the other way around? How will BRICS mechanism benefit from Iran's participation? So that's actually an awkward question because one of the challenging things about BRICS is that it doesn't 
actually have an overall certainly the members have talked got together in the past they want to represent themselves they want a greater exposure recognition um, but in terms of actually transforming the global economy there is no general consensus within the BRICS as to how they should do this as a collective and they certainly have not um, tried sorts to converge their foreign policies in, in the past two decades to try and achieve whatever goal that may be. So, is the certain, so in a sense, there is no kind of decision-making mechanism within the BRICS which mm -hmm. would bring the, the, all, all of them together to work towards the same goal. Um, so it's really much more of a political statement rather than an economic one. But then, Professor, what about, you know, some say that BRICS has done indeed quite something in terms of changing the global governance dynamics. For example, you know, the uh, New Development Bank, as well as, you know, the, the loss of loans that is currently going on under the bank. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's actually quite, quite an important, probably the most significant things that have come out of the BRICS in the last 10 to 15 years were precisely these new institutions, the new mm -hmm. development bank and, and also the contingency reserve agreement. Indeed. But it's also worth keeping in mind what was promised at the time that they came out in 2014, 2015, mm -hmm. and where we are today. Um, the, the size of the NDB and the, and the reserve agreement are quite small in comparison to things like the World Bank and the IMF. And what we've actually seen is not an attempt to try and replace the World Bank and the IMF with these, these new institutions, but more to bring these institutions into the wider global economy, the wider global financial uh, sector. Mm. So there's a lot of, you know, so this, this is one of the tensions that I think that exists when we talk about the BRICS. To what extent is the BRICS actually a seeking to challenge and transform the international system or mm. to make it uh, reflect the... Uh, the, the, the fact that these, these uh, emerging markets are becoming more important and to incorporate them into the existing international system. Mm. Well, I guess, uh, I, I guess I remember previously uh, some of these uh, five governments have said that they are not you know, seeking to challenge the current uh, system, but rather they are providing alternatives or supplements to the current system. But that'll be another topic. Now, Doctor, Russia is now facing severe sanctions from Western countries because of the war in Ukraine. In fact, some countries um, who do business with Russia might face secondary sanctions. Now, how do you see the, the how do you view the room by BRICS countries and possibly more to find ways to lessen the ramifications of these sanctions? Do they have uh, any ways or not? Well, BRICS itself isn't going to resolve the, the question of sanctions for both Russia and Iran, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's ultimately up to the individual governments whether or not they want to fall foul of the sanctions regimes that exist against those countries, uh, or whether they're prepared to work around them. I mean, like I said, there is no... Uh, the, the, the BRICS is more of a sort of a general broad grouping of countries rather than with, you know, an, with a, a, a mechanism in place to overcome these hurdles. So it's really a question of whether those countries, you know, who are current members of, of the BRICS uh, want to antagonize the United States who, who are behind many of these sanctions or whether they want to find a way of working around them. Mm. Well, indeed. Well, Dr. Argentina's president also expressed a willingness that his country is ready to become a full member of BRICS. How do you view, you know, the Argentina's bait to join BRICS? How will it benefit both the organization and the country? Yes. So, I mean, Argentina uh, is already 
I mean, in some ways, it is a, a somewhat different candidate uh, uh, country to Iran. Mm. So it doesn't face the same degree of diplomatic isolation or, and, and, and tension that Iran has with, with the West. Uh, Argentina is very much sort of part of the international community. It's already a member of the G20. So it could see this as a logical next step. Now, of course, you know, within that, there is obviously going to be potential tensions between itself and, and Brazil. Um, you know, it would... <laughs> Between Argentina and Brazil, there is this sort of low humming uh, tension over who who has you know hegemonic status within Latin America, and and potentially bringing Argentina into the BRICS could bring this uh, this this tension, this difficulty, you know, up to a global level. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly uh, that'll be something. I mean, uh, Doctor, uh, I just said that China had said showed its positive attitude about you know the possible enlargement of Iran and also Argentina into BRICS. Um, but how do you think the bid by both these two countries uh, to join BRICS will be received by the founding members of BRICS, except China? I think there's going to be a certain. I mean, I've seen that the Russians and the Chinese are much more have been much more positive. The other three, India. Brazil and South Africa have have been a little bit quieter, and maybe that reflects a certain degree of ambivalence. Um, I mean, take for example, you know, India. It has has tried tried to cultivate quite good relations with with Iran in in recent years, uh, and that could potentially become awkward because given it also has a, a pretty good relationship with the United States. You know, trying to balance those two off could become quite difficult. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Brazil and South Africa themselves, you know, they are not really the, the powers that they were 10 years ago. Mm. I mean, the, their economies have, de- been in, have declined somewhat. So the, the status, the prestige and the, you know, the, the, the polit- I suppose the economic heft that those countries had a decade ago isn't really there. So will they matter so much when it comes to discussing who should be a, a new member? That's debatable. Mm. Well, Doctor, I remember um, last year or maybe the year before last, uh, Jim O'Neill, the you know the economist who framed uh, the BRICS term, actually wrote in the British newspaper Financial Times that uh, the BRICS uh, have disappointed because he argued that uh, BRICS. Uh, he he thought when he coined the term that BRICS economy is going to expand. Uh, but then, I mean, China did, but some of the members did not, uh, I mean, expand as, as he was wishing at the time. So if uh, the BRICS mechanism was... A dis- <laughs> Hello? Yes, I'm here. Yeah. Well, if the BRICS mechanism was a disappointment, then why the leaders or the governments of these five countries are still, you know, actively participating in this mechanism? Because I think it comes back to the main point with the, the political dimension. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Jim O'Neill, when he was first you know, conceived of the idea, he was very much looking at the economic dimension and that these were sort of major emerging uh, powers, powers, and that's economic powers. And I think that's still the case. I mean, they, the, what, has, what the BRICS has done is to uh, shift, as it were, economic uh, presence and influence into political influence. Mm-hmm. Now, because most of these countries are also not only members of BRICS, they're also members of the G20, uh, so they have been involved in debates and discussions about, uh, you know, changes to the global economy. But of course, you know, 20 years, you know, when, when the idea was first thought about 20 years ago, we were in a different world. You know, we've since then had the financial crisis of 2008-9, we've had economic recessions, we've had the pandemic. So it's understandable that a lot of things have happened in, in between that have you know, uh, stunted uh, progression somewhat. But the fact that 
but the fact that the BRICS group at grouping actually exists, I think, matters. And it also has been uh, uh, an opportunity for other countries to, you know, to also reflect on the importance of bringing in other um, groupings together. So we have MICTA, for example, which is you know, the, the Mexico, Indonesia, and South Korea mm-hmm. uh, grouping as well. So there, and, and there is obviously going to be, there, is, there are significant regional groupings out there. So, it, so we're not limited to uh, just global, um, you know, but, and the predominantly Western global institutions anymore. We, there is clearly, you know, sort of a gl- growing interest and attention to more regional and more developing world uh, alternatives. Mm. Well, indeed, I think uh, a lot of people would uh, recognize that uh, the BRICS have done quite something in terms of, uh, you know, expressing the appeals of emerging markets as well as developing economies since its formation in 2006. Thank you, Doctor, for talking to us. That was Dr. Guy Burton, adjunct professor at the Department of International Affairs, Vassilis College in Brussels. You're listening to World Today. More to come. Our interview with Paul Chen, Financial Secretary of Hong Kong. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Stay with us. As walls of rain pummeled Hong Kong on July 1, 1997, the five-star national flag replaced the Union Jack in the sky over the territory to mark its return to the motherland. 25 years have passed. Hong Kong has defied the pessimistic predictions about its future and continued to thrive. The city's economy expanded 2.7% each year and the per capita GDP doubled. It has one of the world's highest life expectancy rates. The number of countries and regions that have visa-free or visa-upon-arrival agreements with the special administrative region went up fourfold to nearly 170. Follow CGTN Radio to find out more about what it's like in Hong Kong 25 years after its return to the motherland. This is World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Since becoming the Financial Secretary of Hong Kong's Special Administrative Region in 2017, Paul Chen has overseen one of Hong Kong's most tumultuous periods. Chen will retain his post in the Hong Kong government, led by the newly elected and appointed sixth-term Chief Executive Zhang Li an appointment widely seen as the incoming administration's efforts to bolster business confidence. In an interview with CGTN, Chen said Hong Kong has grown a lot despite the chaos in 2019 and two years of pandemic disruptions. But keeping the virus under control and relaxing border restrictions with the Chinese mainland will be the key to further recovery. Hitting back and skeptics that question Hong Kong's competitiveness as a global financial center following the 2019 unrest and strict COVID-19 policies, Chen said numbers and facts speak for themselves. Here's a full interview with Paul Chen by CGTN's Huang Fei. COVID-19 has hit small and medium companies hard. What measures have you taken to help SMEs which make up 98% of the business establishments in Hong Kong and employ about 45% of the workforce in the private sector? 
reducing fees and charges, providing, providing financial support is one. The other approach is to provide them with liquidity support. They can go to the bank to apply for loans guaranteed by the government 100%. And then in view of the prolonged COVID attack, we increase the amount up to 27 months of salary and rental, up to a maximum amount of $9 million. And we provide them with repayment holiday. So after obtaining the loan, they do not need to repay the principal immediately. They just service the interest. And the repayment period is pretty long, can be up to 10 years. Following the 2019 turmoils, there have been reports that Hong Kong's status as an international financial center has been challenged. What will you do to alleviate those concerns? If I may share with you some figures uh, about the situation now uh, as compared to before. After the enactment of the national security law, actually the number of companies listed on our stock exchange and the number and total amount raised by them over 500 billion Hong Kong dollars. Very impressive. The asset under management in 2020 gone up to 34 trillion Hong Kong dollars and increased by over 21%. And recently, the International Monetary Fund came to Hong Kong in January, did an assessment praising Hong Kong's international financial status and the resilience of our financial system. The Hong Kong financial sector, despite the chaos in 2019, despite the COVID situation in the past two years, has grown a lot. The Hong Kong government has put a lot of focus on developing the green economy, including issuing green bonds. What's the thinking behind that? Going into the future, green and sustainable finance is a key. Being an international financial center, I think we are very well positioned to guide international capital to match them with green projects. Uh, so far, we have issued green bonds to the equivalent value of 10 billion US dollar. And last year, we have expanded the size of these green bond issuance to attract more foreign capital. Say, for example, last February, the issue size of about 4 billion US dollar. At that time, that was the largest issue by Asian government in terms of green bonds. And last year, we also experimented issuing retail green bonds because in order to achieve green economy, the buy-in from the general public is very important. And from a financial inclusion perspective, it would be good if they can participate in these green bonds and get a decent return. Uh, last year, the Shenzhen Municipal Government came here to issue renminbi bonds to the order of $5 billion, oversubscribed, uh, overwhelming support. Uh, part of it is green bonds. So uh, we are very confident this platform will serve uh, the GBA and our country well in terms of channeling uh, international funds to support the green transition. That was Paul Chen, Financial Secretary of Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. As a guest speaker with today, I feel very much grateful for providing a chance for me to communicate to the world and China's progress and China's accomplishment and also China's rich cultural heritage and, of course, China's desire to integrate itself into the international community. 
I believe today opens the window as well as builds a bridge between people in China and the world. This is World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. A former top White House aide has testified that then U.S. President Donald Trump told staff he didn't care if rioters had weapons, and told Secret Service to remove the devices they used to screen protesters for hidden weapons on January the sixth. The testimony came from Cassidy Hutchinson, a former top aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, in a surprise sixth hearing scheduled by the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol riot last year. Hutchinson depicted White House's West Wing, where some staff members were extremely concerned about violence erupting at the Capitol that day, and others, like Trump and Meadows, were not. The committee blames Trump for conjuring the violent crowd and sending them towards the Capitol, and has placed the former president at the center of a conspiracy to overturn his loss to President Joe Biden in the 2020 election. For more on this, my colleague Ge Anna earlier talked with Professor Zhang Gong from University of International Business and Economics. Professor, could you please give us a brief summary of what has been presented in the previous hearings? Any highlights caught your attention so far?、Um, I think the the last two rounds of、uh, testimonies in Congress、uh, is just eye opening.、Uh, first is with respect to the testimonies from three top level officials from the Justice Department:、uh, Jeff Rosen,、uh, Richard Donahue, and、uh, I think it's a、uh, Steve Engel.、Um, And, and they, their testimonies basically portrayed a essentially a coup within the Justice Department that ex-President Donald Trump was indeed orchestrating,、uh, trying to replace the entire Justice Department leadership with、uh, Jeff Clark, who is a middle-level、uh, officer official within the Justice Department, who is a, an ardent、uh, disciple, I would say, of、uh, Donald Trump. Um, and this is essentially a coup, in my view. Now, the, the second round of testimony just happened, you know, yesterday by、uh, Hutchinson, the day before yesterday, is is portrays even a even a larger coup, as we all know it. You know, that's the、uh, January sixth insurrection,、um, and how President Trump played a role in all of this. And and these testimonies.、Um, Are just eye-opening, you know. It's just unbelievable to me. So、uh, I won't go into details, but we can discuss this later on. But in any case, and、uh, that's going to conclude、uh, the Pan African Journal worldwide、uh, radio broadcast、uh, for today. If you'd like to have access to this program,、uh, just go、uh, to our website at the、uh, Pan African Radio Network, and、uh, that's that. BlogTalkRadio.com、uh, forward slash、uh, Pan African Journal, and if you'd like to read、uh, the Pan African Newswire, just go to our website at PanAfricanNews.blogspot.com. This is Abayomi Azikiwe, and、uh, we're going to close out、uh, with the music of Kenny Durham、uh, from the Jazz Contrast album recordings of 1957. This is Abayomi Azikiwe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank you.